My name is Valerie Payne, and this is the podcast Finding Unity. I started this podcast because of a personal experience that helped me to see the need for unity in our society right now. I hope that you will come along with me on my quest to find unity as we seek understanding, connection, healing, and love. As you listen to different perspectives, remember that it is okay to disagree. Unity comes when we can agree to disagree while maintaining a love for one another. Today's episode is a personal episode because it's actually my sister um, talking about um, self-harm and self-mutilation and um, she's talking with her husband and they will be addressing marital conflict as well. I just want to give viewer discretion that some of the things that my sister talks about might be triggering to individuals who are overcoming self-harming behaviors or have suicidal ideation. With that being said, here's this week's episode of Finding Unity. Hi, this is Valerie Payne, and you're listening to Finding Unity. And one part of Finding Unity is we're really seeking for understanding, healing, connection, love. And I feel like this um, interview actually encompasses all of it. So um, today's actually a more personal podcast for us. Um, I'm interviewing my, my sister, Melanie Hernandez, and... Go ahead, Melanie. Hi there. <laughs> and her husband, Scott Hernandez. Hello. And Melanie um, had struggled with cutting. And so this is something really personal that, that we haven't really talked very publicly about. Right, Melanie? Yeah. And so Melanie knew about my podcast and felt comfortable <laughs> talking about it. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, of sisters. course. And um, we know that as we talk, our voices sound similar. So hopefully you can distinguish the difference between the two of us. <laughs> Um, so Melanie, I first want to go back and ask, what did your childhood look like? Well, for a good portion of my childhood, my sister pretended to be my imaginary friend. So I'll That's let true. you decide how that I looks. I did. I used to pretend to be my sister's imaginary friend. And she would be like, no, you're not. You're my sister. And I would say, no. I'm Crystal. I'm Crystal. You're <laughs> and she'd have this friend. rainbow braid that she would put in her hair, so I would know she was Crystal. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Valerie doesn't have this. <laughs> Valerie doesn't have this braid. So the real question is who had more issues because I feel like <laughs> I probably had a lot if I was doing that. But um, what else? Is there anything else you kind of want to paint? I, I always say this too. I use the phrase paint a picture, but I feel like that's the best, th- like help paint mm-hmm. a picture for what your childhood looked like. Um. I loved my childhood for the most part. I mean, I had a good family. I had a good home. My, you know, you, my parents, our brother, everyone loved me. And um, I think the only real issue for me in childhood was I struggled making friends Mm -hmm. and I struggled keeping friends. Yeah. And just as her sister, kind of reiterating that, I remember Melanie coming home it felt like almost every day crying about not having friends and, you know, just like crying in my lap and mm-hmm. um, like praying for friends. Um, yeah. I think uh, if I remember right. Yeah. So struggling with friends was a big thing for, for her. Um, so can you tell me when or tell us when was the first time that you remember cutting? So the first time I remember cutting, 
it was never serious when I started out. I was in seventh grade, I think, around 13 years old. And this was around the time where I did start making friends. And I was becoming a social butterfly. And I was hopping around from group to group. And in one of my group friends that I had made in middle school, there were these two girls who cut. And they would show off their scars like they were bragging about them. And to, to get a you know, clear picture of what that was like, if any of you have seen the show American Horror Story, in the first season there are these two characters, Violet and Tate. And in one of the episodes, they're showing, they're bragging about each other's scars and like trying to one-up each other. Like, I did this because of this last week, blah, blah, blah. And that was very much what it was like with these two girls. And so I decided, like, well, I really want to find a way to relate to them because I want to get closer to them and I want to keep friends, you know? So I started cutting. And and like I said, it was never serious at first. It was more like paper cuts. Um, but I did it as a way to fit in. Um, looking back on it, I just think that was, like, so pathetic of me. But I would have done anything at that time to just keep friends. Mm-hmm. I know you said you felt pathetic about it. But again, like you were a kid, you were young. I think it's totally normal for us to feel like that Mm -hmm. when we're young. Yeah. Um, And to like have this huge insecurity and do dumb things to make friends. Yeah. Or keep friends. So Mm -hmm. when was the first time that you remember it actually like... Becoming an issue. Yeah, becoming an issue. So when it became an issue was more around in high school. In middle school, it was more of like me developing the habit of doing it because when I started doing it, I would try to think of something bad that would happen. So I would have, you know, that cut to remember and I would be able to relate to my friends and say, oh, I did this because this bad thing happened to me. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I think it really started to become an issue when um, more serious things would happen and the cuts got deeper. And the the first time I remember that happening is when my boyfriend and I at the time in high school broke up. So, um, and just kind of giving the other side of it as the family, I remember seeing Melanie having writing things in her skin with pencils. Yeah, that was around in middle school too. And I think we honestly didn't look at it as cutting. We were like, oh, she's just being a kid and writing in. And you said it, it didn't really feel that serious at that time, but you were kind of doing it to show your friends and it was experimental for sure and in a way you were almost from what I'm hearing anyway you were almost kind of planting that idea of like something bad happening I cut because your friends were telling you oh when this bad thing happens I cut and so exactly like, okay that's exactly. really interesting so um do you want to talk a little bit about this incident that happened you said when your boyfriend broke up with you that was the first time you really cut deep yeah um It was different because it was more than a habit at this point. It was a way for me to release pain. And the only way I could really describe it is like like I could feel the pain in my blood and I needed to get the pain out. And I know that sounds really gory and graphic, but that's how it felt. So you felt like the best way to release it was by inflicting the pain on yourself. Yeah. But it it sounds too like what you were saying that – Again, you kind of had this habit formed of something negative I cut mm-hmm. and which maybe is why when this happened, you... Yeah, it just became this this pattern. Yeah. And that's really interesting because I think of like when you talk about any addiction, you talk... Um, there's like that phrase blast, like boredom, loneliness, anger, stress, tired that can like trigger different types of addiction. Um, and I know you said when you were younger, you kind of felt like it wasn't an addiction at that point. No. no. Okay. It was a way for me to make friends. 
Okay. So when you were doing this, were you doing this with the intent to kill yourself? No, not initially. Okay. And I think that's something that's important to point out because often people who cut, it doesn't mean that they're suicidal. It can be related, but it doesn't always mean that. So I just want to put that out there. And I don't think it ever, I don't think it ever was really um, an attempt at suicide for me. It was more of just a way to release pain. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it it got more serious down the road. So it really got serious with um, your boyfriend in high school. When did it, um, or how often was it happening at this point? Um, it wasn't happening too often. I would say it would it would mainly just be happening when some when I felt like something really bad would happen, something dramatic like me and my boyfriend breaking up. Um, when I say it started getting more serious, was probably when uh, I got married at twenty years old. What and what init- What about being married? Well, it was, I mean, Scott can talk a little bit about this too, but I think it was mainly I haven't been away from my family or my home my whole life. And then all of a sudden I just up and move to San Diego Mm -hmm. and I'm away from everything I'm comfortable with. I don't know where I am. I don't know anyone. And it was hard for me. Yeah. And as as open as we were before our marriage, um, like we, we talked about it and we talked about it. We put everything on the table in terms of things that we had been um, like things we hadn't told anybody else. Right. Like that often you're you're getting to that point And if you're going to get married, you're probably going to tell everything, hopefully. Right. Mm-hmm. For us, we did. And um, so I knew about it before we got married. But then, <clears throat> yeah, that that I, I didn't really get, I think, at the time what it was like to be separated for her from her family because she was so attached to the area and to, you know, the the routine and everything of being close to family and having a support structure. So all of that was taken away from her the moment we moved away from there. And I didn't really know that that was affecting her so badly. So we, we uncovered this through therapy and we'll probably talk about that and stuff. But um, it was it, it was just difficult for me to see what she was going through. And so it, she kept doing it you know, in secret, and it ended up moving from her wrists to her her ankles, um, so that it was a little bit more. Uh, she was trying to make it difficult to find uh, and all that at that time. Yeah. Um, so it was happening more often, I know, at the beginning of our marriage, um, even though it wasn't before we got married. So that that must have been a catalyst of some sort to mm-hmm. have led to. Um, I don't know, if, if it was loneliness, if it was um, fear or whatever. I think it was a combination emotions. of all those things. Yeah. And I, at this point, I was getting better at hiding it. Well, not from you, obviously, because you're my husband and you know every inch of my body. But <laughs> <laughs> but when um, before I was married, I you know no one ever looked at my feet, so I started switching from my arms to my ankles, and then I would never have to talk about it. I think one of the reasons why I did that was because one time I remember while I was working at the Disney store, the happiest place to work on earth, um, I was cutting. And I, I remember I remember uh, actually putting an ace bandage around my arm that was freshly cut and everyone asking me, oh, Melanie, what happened to your arm? And I would just lie and say I sprained it. Yeah. So it sounds like when you, you started – um, you didn't feel like it was an issue yet. And then it sounds like when you got married, it became more of an issue. Like, I guess my question is, when did it really, did you really recognize That's, it as a problem? I Yeah. So it became an issue, I think, in high school. I didn't recognize it as an issue until we were married. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in your marriage, it sounds like you were cutting more frequently? Yes. Okay. Especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then do you want to talk about, well, first of all, you kind of 
talked about how how Scott reacted to it. It sounds like you talked about it before your marriage. He was aware, but wasn't really aware of how big of a problem it was until after you got married. Um, what? How did the rest of your family react to it? And just so the audience knows, because this is my sister, um, I I feel like the first time you really cut seriously when you were in high school, I was I was in another country, living mm-hmm. in another country yeah, at the time. That's right. And so I wasn't around for it. So I actually didn't even find out about the cutting like really being an issue until later in life until more recently I think that's because like I said I was hiding it yeah you know when when the intent wasn't you know serious at first when I was in middle school you know I remember us at family dinner and you guys noticing my arms and just being like oh Melanie don't do that and then we would like continue on to the next subject you know Mm -hmm. because our family is chaotic at family loud Italian family yeah (laughs) yeah um okay so do you want to what helped you then um through that like what helped you actually I guess address it and then overcome it well it got to a point where this was about five years into our marriage and I was cutting and Scott said, this needs to stop now or I'm leaving. And that's when we actually had to do something about it. This was also at a point when we were both having serious marital issues um, beyond just me cutting myself. And this is when we started shopping around for therapists. So Um, we didn't end up going with like the first or second or even third therapist that we went to. We ended up going with one who we loved and that we felt was the best for us both. Um, We actually had one therapist in the beginning that was falling asleep on us during sessions. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, just to put this out there, I think it's really important to not lose hope if you find a therapist that you don't like, Mm -hmm. that you can keep shopping around and find what you're looking for. Yeah. And first of all, I think it's important because I do feel like our culture really kind of looks down on getting help sometimes. No. I think even if you don't think you're having issues, you should still go to therapy. Right. Even if you think your life is fabulous, which Mm -hmm. it probably is, go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I agree. I think it's really important to get a therapist, but I do feel like we have this stigma around mental health. I think it's awesome that you guys, to me, that shows a lot of humility and vulnerability to be able to get help. And really persistence because the, gosh, you had a therapist that was falling asleep on you. I can't yeah. imagine. And like not giving up, hoping like all therapists and making assumptions, all therapists are going to be horrible and falling asleep on us. So what do you feel like was the catalyst for you getting help? Well, I don't think we initially went to go get help because of my cutting. We initially went to go help, get help because of our marital issues mm-hmm. that we were dealing with. And cutting was one of the issues I think that's really interesting because actually no I I do think there's a lot of self-reflection that comes when you go to get therapy a lot of things that you don't consider when you're by yourself but when you go and see a therapist you can get that help um, with and it sounds like it wasn't necessarily then um Scott saying okay you have to get help on it but it was more of like you were having marriage issues and um I needed someone to tell me that I needed help because mm-hmm. I didn't have enough self-worth and I needed someone to I was at that point I was still relying on people to build up my self-worth and self-worth and therapy was something that I had to go through to be able to get that on my own. So do you feel like the cutting was coming from you feeling inadequate? Yeah, that's one of the things I would say for sure. Well, also um I'm I remember 
in in the first year that we that we were married and lived in San Diego, I, I just remember one time that you had done it and you showed me the cuts and it was like out of defiance to get a reaction out of me because I, a lot of times you would do things mm. to try and get an emotional reaction from me. Um, what, I, I don't remember what that was about or why why you needed that at the time and that that was something that was like a... I was grasping at straws when we were in San Diego. I think when we were in San Diego, I was feeling one of my lowest I've ever mm-hmm. felt. But rock bottom didn't hit until five years into our marriage. Mm-hmm. So five years in your... So it sounds like the cutting started more frequently, but five years in your marriage is when you hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, is that because you were having marriage issues or was that because of the cutting? That's because we were having marriage issues. And as a result of that, I started cutting more. Okay. Yeah, because it was, you know, it started out hard because we had moved and then it kind of petered off for a little bit. And then when, when the problems started rising again, the cutting started rising again too. So then it came back into the forefront. And it was like, I thought we went through this already, you know, and, and it led to more argument, if anything, because it was coming up again mm-hmm. during a sensitive time in our marriage. Mm-hmm. So then when we when we did seek out help, it was it was at the forefront again of our problems. Mm-hmm. Therapy saved our marriage, mm-hmm. like in every way, with me cutting, with with both of the issues that we were facing, which we won't go into detail about. But therapy one hundred percent helped save our marriage. So how do how did how do you feel like therapy helped you as a team work together? Um, well, so I hadn't like when when we got married, we were very much a team, right? And then before uh, while we were dating because we didn't date very long we dated for six months um in fact we knew each other for six months like mm-hmm. we met at comic-con in line that's a story a panel, within itself another story <laughs> yeah but like we, we we hit it off really strong right and and we started as a team like we were ready to to take on everything and i had a real sense of empathy for melanie i could feel her point of view and like we were just we jived really really well and then once we got married all of a sudden everything changed and then things changed on both of our ends and I think both were catalysts for um, affecting how we saw each other and, and how we thought of ourselves mm-hmm. and for me in particular all of a sudden my empathy like stopped and and I, I couldn't understand her point of view I didn't want to seek out any kind of understanding with her and it, I started putting up these crazy walls like to the point where I would actually stonewall and like shut down I, I, I just would have no reaction at all and that would piss her off the most mm-hmm. um, and I that wouldn't would say it more... would piss me off sure, but sure. it definitely made me feel helpless like I, I didn't mm-hmm. know what to do with a husband that was completely shut down mm-hmm. and then I would shut down mm-hmm. and so we were both just these shut down people how do you how do you help mm-hmm. two people in that yeah. situation and part of your reaction to that was to cut because you yeah. had control over that I remember you telling me that one time mm-hmm. too it was like well I do have control over my life so I can do something about that and mm-hmm. and that would scare me whenever you'd say that and so it would lead to I don't arguments I remember saying that I yeah, said that you said that before mm. so it was um, dark, dark times, yeah. <laughs> like your soul, like my soul. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, you know, over the course of that five years or whatever, it, I, during tough times, I would stonewall. She would start cutting. It was kind of a pattern of behavior that we we we'd go through, and then, so we were fine for a few years, and that's why we weren't seeking out help. And and it was it was rocky, but we were kind of ignoring the problems. And then when things started getting rocky again. 
Um, we, because we started spending some time apart because of jobs and things like that. It just led to a lot more of the same problems from the beginning of feeling isolated and frustrated and, and all that kind of stuff. Misunderstood. So, yeah. So, and, and I had never fixed the empathy part of it. So I, I, I never sought to understand still at that point why she was doing what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And so then when it started happening again, it was flaring up again, my reaction to it. And I still hadn't changed anything about it. And that's when therapy started coming in. And was like, okay, I need to start taking it seriously, and and not on her side, like not not to like say that she has to change in some way, but that my behavior was a direct uh, catalyst or a trigger for her um, in continuing what was happening. And something we both had to learn with therapy, we both had to learn how to communicate with one another and just take those communication skills seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because John Gottman, um, who's a, a therapist, him and his wife, well, the Gottmans. And they talk about stonewalling. They talk about um, like how you need to turn towards each other. And I like how you said, it was interesting to me anyway, that you said you really weren't even trying to understand. And so just thinking of this being a unity podcast that um, really like how important it is to strive to seek understanding even when you don't get it. So it sounds, Scott, like you were frustrated at times with the cutting, but like things really started to change when you started to seek understanding, even though you disagreed with what she was Mm -hmm. doing still striving to seek that understanding of the why behind it. The the only thing I knew was that she was hurting in some way, but I couldn't see why she was hurting and what I was doing to You couldn't understand why. Yeah. Yeah. And and, well, and therapy helped me understand that I didn't really need to understand it. I just had to know that she was hurting. Yeah. And that that was all that, that's all the information I needed to go and do something to help her. So then it could be small gestures and and making her feel loved in ways that, that, um, that were, in her love language, not in my love language. That mm-hmm. was a very big difference between us because I would always expect her to show me love in a certain way and she expected me to show love in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and so I had to just realize that she was going through something and then help her in the way that she wanted help or, mm-hmm. or that would have helped her in, in that situation. And for me at this point uh, in therapy, I had to learn how to break the loop because that's one of the reasons why I was making the habit of cutting myself is I would dig myself into this loop and I would just go over and over in my head. This person didn't say hi to me. This person doesn't want to be my friend. This person was going to talk to everyone else and tell them not to be my friends. And I'm never going to have friends and I'm going to be lonely and I'm going to die alone and I'm going to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and, I would, And that would extend to me too. Uh, Scott, yeah. Scott didn't do the dishes like he said he was going to do or he didn't come home right on time. So that must mean that he doesn't, he doesn't love, love me. me. He's going to leave me. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't really care about me. Which sounds crazy. Something. It is crazy. So I had to teach myself how to break out of that loop and understand that these thoughts that were going into my head are not reality yeah and actually there are so many people that struggle with that that's why cognitive (laughs) behavioral therapy exists because yeah you're you're checking those thinking errors and looking for what evidence is there really so the the way for me that i was able to break out of that loop is like i i couldn't understand for the longest time how to make myself stop thinking that way Mm -hmm. and so my therapist and i we just worked on this one phrase that i would repeat in my head over and over again if that would happen And that phrase was, first of all, I'm a religious person. So um, one of the phrases was, I did everything I could with the knowledge that I had. And Heavenly Father knows that. And Mm -hmm. I would just repeat that phrase over and over again in my head. I love that. Give it to God. That's actually a technique from acceptance and mindfulness too. Like putting it on the cloud, letting it float away and just letting it go. That's actually one of her daily reminders that that pops up on her phone. I put daily reminders on my phone. One of them is put it on a cloud. 
And then another one is uh, do not run faster than you have strength. And scream at your inner witch. Scream at, oh yeah, because I had a nightmare <laughs> once. We don't need to get into that, but <laughs> I had a nightmare once. And, and one of my reminders is scream at your inner witch. <laughs> well, I after this podcast, I want to hear more about that. Okay. But, um, you know, I, um, thanks for sharing that. I think that's really helpful. And again, just reiterating the importance of getting help when you need it. So what I want to ask now is, Melanie, was there anything helpful that people said to you when um, you were going through, like when you were cutting? Did no. people, did anyone, like I know Scott knew, but did mm-hmm. mom and dad know about the cutting? Like high school? Because it sounds like middle I school. I don't know if they knew. Because like I said, I was hiding it. So yeah. I don't think they knew. But definitely when Scott and I were going through our marriage problems, you, you guys knew. And I mean, you didn't know the details, but mm-hmm. you knew that we were going through issues and it was serious. I was on antidepressants and I was I was a completely different person. I was like a zombie. And, you know, you, mom, everyone would try to say things to like lift me up. And honestly, there's nothing anyone could have said to lift me up in that situation because I was just, I was in my head. I was at a dark time and I needed to just go through it and wait out the storm. And I think one thing just to remember, like, because Melanie's my sister and I have a mental health background, I think that's really hard too is and something to remember that like, you are not your family's therapist and you can talk to people, you can try to help. I mean, I think it's fine to have mm-hmm. conversations and to express feelings, but it's not your job to be the therapist to mm-hmm. your family. It's your job to be a sister, like for me, a sister And I don't to want you. you to guys to think that you weren't helpful mm-hmm. during that time. Like, you know, I look back on it now and I'm so grateful that I had like family and loved ones. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> and people that were like reaching out to me at that time. But it was really hard for me to accept that love at the time because at that time I needed to love myself. And I remember you saying, because we talked a little bit about this podcast before we actually started recording, and I remember you saying that, because I said, this is Unity Podcast. How did you find Unity? And you said, well, no, I wanted to be by myself, right? <laughs> Didn't you say that to me? Or yeah. you were isolating yourself? I was, like, because uh, you guys wanted to do things with me, and I wanted to just be by myself. Sorry. You guys wanted to do things with me, and I just wanted to be by myself and cry and be alone in my room and listen to sad music and hold my dog. (laughs) So again, my question is, because you said it wasn't helpful with people talking necessarily, and you're grateful for that support. So how did you find a sense of unity at the end of the day? Because now we're talking, now we're together. I know you mentioned therapy, but was there anything else that you feel like was helpful for you finding unity? I just said this actually, but getting a dog was really helpful. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. Yeah. For people who love animals. Just yeah. kidding. I mean, but um, I should know at this no, point when I did, when we did get a dog, we were pretty much past the issues, but having a dog just helped me not to, um, having a dog helps me not backslide into my bad habits because you had another outlet I had another outlet and it was a more positive outlet this Mm -hmm. time petting Mm -hmm. my dog (laughs) yeah no for sure I think that's really and um I think every time there is something that we struggle with it's really important to try to replace it with something else Mm -hmm. so it sounds to me like for you it sounds like you'd worked through a lot of the cutting but that the dog um kind of helped you therapy did like 100% of the work Mm -hmm. mostly but then having a dog just helped me not backslide Mm -hmm. yeah great yeah so finding anchors after the fact so that it didn't you know continue down the path yeah so she she filled with other things I should note that I've never had a dog before and this was always a dream of mine (laughs) so which which was another unifying thing right because I I we part of our miscommunication most of the time had to do with like 
how we saw our life going in our marriage so she had a fairy tale fairy fairy tale view of it of like we're gonna get a house and it's gonna be beautiful i'm gonna have you know babies and dogs and blessings and, are going to rain down on us yeah it's just, <laughs> just gonna be this amazing thing right and i always used to laugh at the dream which was part of where <laughs> things would go wrong right and and through therapy and, and and communication and all that started to understand that she didn't mean like oh, we have to get a house now because we had been struggling for those first few years, right? I was like, there's no way we have a house anywhere in the next few years or a dog because we were in an apartment or anything like that. And I was like, why are you fixated on that when it's so far out in the future? And so after therapy, it helped me understand like, okay, well, you don't mean right this instant. You just mean, can we work towards it? So, so reframing my way of thinking around her mm-hmm. helped us to go to a place where she could be assured that I was working with her to move forward in our lives uh, and that it would be better and that promises would be fulfilled eventually and that we could set timelines on that. We could we could work towards it together instead of fighting with each other about when it would happen or whether it would happen or something like that. Because right. I was I was always open to it, but I always thought it, it was like, she wants it now, I can't give it to her, there's nothing I can do, now I'm frustrated, and then she gets frustrated and it leads to the other stuff. So we had to we had to work through that that communication loop of understanding each other and what our intentions were before it would help, um, you know, to not backslide and all that. Yeah, the main thing that I'm hearing you guys say over and over is that you really learned how to communicate with each other, whether Mm -hmm. that's like communicating how to express your love to one another or just like seeking that understanding, which really it sounds like you found that through therapy. Yes. So Melanie, what were some things that were not helpful during this time? Well, the the only main thing I can remember is – one thing that someone said that was close to me, and this was probably around the time I was in high school, um, noticed the cuts and was like, you're just doing that to crave attention. You're just you're just an attention craver. And I think that's really helpful because um, sometimes as, as like friends or family, um, we may not understand like how serious it mm-hmm. is for someone and kind it, of blowing it off even. Like I don't, I think it's so easy for us to be like, not my child, not my family member that can't be happening to me you know yeah well like I said initially it it was to crave attention but then it developed into something more serious so when it when this person said this to me it was at the time when it developed into something more serious and it really irked me because it was a way for me to release and now I needed to find a way to hide that release Mm -hmm, because you felt like they were looking at it and saying oh look at you you're doing it for attention yeah and now it was a reason to be bullied more than anything Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask if there's anything you could tell Melanie someone who's um, going through cutting using that as an outlet what advice would you have for them and then also like Scott as a family member like what advice would you have it's hard because like after going through this whole podcast podcast and living back some of the memories that I had to face, there is nothing anyone could have said to help me in that moment. It was something that I had to work on on my own. So the only thing I could really think of is that I know what it's like to be in that, that mindset where you're just like in the darkest place imaginable and you can't even fathom there being a light at the end of the tunnel or that there even is a tunnel. Um, So the only thing I could say is press on because not everything is going to be better all at once. Some things take time and 
don't wait to hit rock bottom. Get help now. The thing is, too, like, our therapy took time, you know? Like, it took us a year. It took us a year. Yeah. So it was literally a year of me slouching around like a zombie and thinking there's not a light at the end of this tunnel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you may think that for a while, but all I can say is just press on because it's not always going to be that way. I love that message of hope. Like it yeah. took you a year. And I think that's the hard thing is we're in such an instantaneous society that we forget. Yeah, we're all about instant gratification. Yeah, that it takes time and hard work. So um, Scott, what advice would you have to give to family members or people who are struggling with a loved one? Well, it's funny her saying that nothing would would change it, but something did and something because it was other people. I think I think that was the thing, right? Because it was difficult for her to recognize in herself that she didn't have to do that to herself and that there were other alternatives. So it was up to people around her. And in this case, me and ther- and our therapist um, to give her an opportunity to, to let it all out and, and, and all that. So like, I would say that for other people that have family members or friends that are like Melanie, where, where we, um, we struggled for so long fe- feeling like, well, I can't fix her life. She has to fix it. She's got to do something. So I'll just wait for her to do it. Right. There were things I could have done to alleviate it. Like we, we talked about how there were hills and valleys and most of the time the hills were happening because I wasn't there for her and that I, I like, I'm putting it on me just because I, um, Melanie just put her hand on Scott's leg. It was really (laughs) sweet. (laughs) I see where there were opportunities for me to have found empathy for her when I knew she was going through something. Look for the signs that that she is getting into a slump and then just do something. It could be anything. Like I remember there were little things that I could do for her, like bring her chocolate or get her a flower or something that I could do that was small to show her. How much I loved her. I can't take it. You can't either. And if I had done that the hundreds of times that I had opportunities, she wouldn't have had to go that direction. Because that's what we do now, right? It's been 10 years. and, and It wasn't just you, though. It was a habit that I needed to break. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you needed an opportunity to get to the point where you were comfortable with it, right? Because if, if it was just you alone... Mm-hmm. The, you wouldn't break it. Like you, you talk about how you would loop on loop, stuff all yeah. the time and, and it's just an infinite chain and you don't know how to break out of it. So someone has to be there to help you break the loop so that you can see it objectively and, and kind of um, realize that it's happening and then you can change it, right? So that's where other people come in. And I think, I think that's the biggest thing I would say to people is like, look at your support structure. Who do you have around you? Because you probably do have people that are there, mm-hmm. right? And if, and if and you're not the person going through it, but someone else is, there are things you can do. Figure out what they care about, what will make them have temporary moments of happiness, you know, and and give that to them. Don't hold back and wait until like, is it okay for me to do that? Or I'll just wait until they're out of the slump and then I'll do stuff. Like, do it now and do it sincerely. Just do it. <laughs> and and then maybe it'll it'll lead to them realizing that there there is something worth changing for you know, uh, especially the relationships around them. Like, I, I think there was a point where you didn't want to be with me and I didn't want to be with you. But once we started doing the things that would make each other happy and show that we cared in the way that we wanted to be cared for, um, things started to change mm-hmm. for the better. I love that you said, like, basically what I'm hearing is like, you know, Melanie's love language. So you, you, you doing those extra things to communicate that to her were helpful. Mm-hmm. I do want to be careful, though, just to make sure our listeners, if there is someone who's has a family member struggling with it, to not take the blame on themselves. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. 
what what I'm also hearing you say, Scott, is like, I think for me as a sister, because I found out about it when it was happening, but I didn't realize how severe it was. And until, yeah, like probably around that when you guys were married for about five years. And and I think that knowing that that was happening, like even though you weren't ready for us, you knew we were there so yeah. that you could reach out to us when you were ready. And I think that was what I meant by saying that nothing anyone would say would help me because mm-hmm. I was just in my own head and I needed to be able to get out of it. And once I got out of it, I would recognize the love that was around me. Right. So being present, even when I think that might be good feedback is like being present for someone, even when they're not ready to receive it, just so that mm-hmm. they know yeah. that you're there. Yeah. Because yeah. once they are ready for it, it's easier to recognize the times that that it helped. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then I wanted to ask something that I ask everyone on this podcast is what does unity mean to you? So Scott, maybe if you want to share your thoughts first and then have it end with Melanie. Yeah, I, I think it uh, comes down to getting outside of yourself. Um, and if you can be selfless, then it will draw others to you um, and it will draw you to them. So if you are not so uh, worried about making sure that your end of the deal is the better end. Um, you know, self-interest works to a point and you have to protect yourself and, you know, definitely protect yourself if someone's damaging your life. But when it comes to reaching out to people and stuff, like you can't put their problems on you, but you can reach out and help them. Um, and in doing that, like at least in our relationship, we'll just speak to that. Um, the more selfless I've been with her, the more she's returned the favor. Um, and the more I do it without expecting anything, the greater the rewards are coming back to me. So it, it for me, the uni- like finding unity, especially in our marriage um, in our relationship, was um, letting go of my perspective and instead embracing hers and letting myself um, not worry about little details about what I might disagree with or, or anything like that. Instead, focus on I love her and I want her to be happy. So I will do things that will help her to be happy um, rather than things that will help me to be happy. Awesome. Melanie, what does unity mean to you? I think just like what Scott said was perfect. I think selfless love describes unity to me. The act of showing someone that love in whatever love language you can and not expecting anything in return. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being on. Melanie, thank you so much for opening up and being vulnerable. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) And until next time. I want to thank my sister again for being vulnerable enough to talk about this. Um, we, We talked and she said it was something she wanted to share to help other people. And so I'm really grateful for her being vulnerable enough to talk about this. And also Scott... Um, and her being willing to talk about marital conflict as well and the importance of therapy. I love their thoughts on having courage to move forward, courage to get help, and really having true love for one another. Um, I love that because I think when we think of love, sometimes we think of, well, what am I getting instead of what am I giving? And I think true charity is being able to give freely without any expectations. So I really loved those thoughts and insights that they had. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others so that we can spread the message of unity throughout the world. I would also love to hear your thoughts on this episode.
Remember that it's okay to disagree. Unity comes when we can agree to disagree while still maintaining a love for one another. For more on unity, follow us on Instagram at finding.unity or on Twitter at finding underscore unity.